If you have your Bible, you can turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. That'll also be on the screen. You know, praying is, at its heart, a pretty simple concept. We are simply talking to God. Talking to the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. Sometimes prayer is like a desperation call for help. Uh, Sometimes it's a leisurely kind of walk in the woods, and we get to talk along with our Savior. Simplest prayer I've ever prayed in my life was, Jesus, help! (laughs) Um, And there's a real reality that when someone's learning to pray, we don't don't try to use super flowery language or, or pray out loud in kind of an amazing way so other people will think we're really spiritual or smart. Uh, Jesus had some specific words about that. Um, but as you mature in prayer, uh, it becomes more and more specific, doesn't it? Our, te- our prayers, maybe at the beginning of our Christian walk, are a little bit like the Miss America thing up front. Dear God, I just pray for world peace. Um, every Miss America contestant says that. That's sweet. That's a good, good sentiment. Uh, But over time, as we mature in prayer, it becomes a little more specific. Right now in our world, obviously, everyone's thinking about the war in Ukraine. Uh, There was some tragic revelations this week of of a mass grave that they found. Uh, And so our our prayers become a little bit more specific, a little bit more informed. Um, And we're praying that God would bring that tragic conflict to an end. Well, the Bible contains a ton of different prayers. Some are really long. Some are very short. Some are in the middle of a battle or an action scene. Some are in quiet places. Uh, But one of the absolute all-star prayers in the Bible is Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I love it because it's short to the point, but it's also incredibly deep, incredibly rich in all that it has to teach us. Uh, So we're going to dive into our first point, Paul's prayer. And this is verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Simple words, but they pack a ton of meaning. Now, I have a history here at Ocean View that at heart, I'm a bit of a nerd and uh, occasionally I'll dip back into the, the original common Greek that the second half of the Bible was written in. And I did that this week, doing a little translation work. Now, we just read the NIV, the New International Version. So you're going to hear the DIV, the Darren International Version. It's not very famous and not very international, but it's my little translation. So uh, here we go with the DIV. And this is my prayer for all of you, Paul writes that your love may grow in abundance to a greater and greater extent in knowledge and depth of understanding and insight. And I love how the Greek there really kind of goes after a plant metaphor, an organic metaphor. It's a, it's a plant growing in abundance. We planted sunflowers this year, and those things just shot up. They're ridiculous. I think they were 14 feet high. They, and then the big sunflower head got so heavy, the whole thing cracked and fell over. Um, no matter how much we watered it. But it's, it's that beautiful idea of growing in abundance, bigger, taller, more beautiful than we could expect. And Paul wrote those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he is thinking about that first group of, of Christians in that Roman city of Philippi. As we talked about last week, this is the very first church planted 
on the European continent. Kind of a landmark, this amazing little church. So what do these words mean when Paul says that your love may grow more and more in abundance in knowledge and depth of understanding? How does love grow in knowledge? When we stop and think about that, we kind of instinctively know from life experience that if love is just 100% pure, raw emotion, then, and it's not guided by a little bit of knowledge, it can go astray. If you think back uh, to when you were a teenager and the first crush you had, the first time you fell in love, and it was just so over the top, you thought this person was so amazing, they're like the best person who's ever walked on planet Earth, and then five months later, you break up, and it's just the worst, and, and you can't go on living. Uh, I will never love again. It's over. Uh, maybe Alfred Lord Tennyson, the great poet, was right. He said, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. So love in the romantic sense, he needs a little bit of knowledge to guide it. It's also true in the sense of relationships. Put any group of people together, like our church if we're all going to get along and see the mission accomplished, see the name of Jesus raised up in our communities of Cedar, Ladysmith, Saltaire, Shemanus, then our love can't be just 100% pure, raw emotion. If that was true, then I'm going to love you one day, as long as we're getting along great, and the moment you do something annoy me, well, then you're done. I just can't stand you. You know, Knowledge steps in and says, whoa, 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 whoa. None of us are perfect. We're all following Jesus. We all got the same goal. Of course, we're going to have days when we ruffle each other's feathers on occasion. So we can kind of see why Paul wants us to add knowledge to our love. We get that. But what's the difference between knowledge and insight? What's going on there? Well, I think this illustration will help. People have been using a needle and thread to sew things, from sails to clothing for thousands of years. But it wasn't until 1845 when this guy, Elias Howe, finally figured out how to make a sewing machine, a machine that could speed up sewing a thousand times as fast. And years after he died, they found a journal, and it was a family journal that had been uh, kept by this man named Thomas Draper. And in that journal, he recorded kind of the big breakthrough for Elias Howe and how the sewing machine came to be. So this was written in 1845. He says he almost beggared himself. We don't use that words anymore, but it means bankrupted himself before he discovered where the eye of the needle of the sewing machine should be located. His original idea was to follow the model of the ordinary needle and have the eye at the top of the needle. But his invention wasn't working, and he was so frustrated. And day after day, he would try to figure out what was going on with this sewing machine. Why wasn't it working? And he took it all apart, reassembled it. He had all these drawings and plans. And finally, one night, he had a dream. And it was kind of the a real tossy turny he's breaking out in a cold sweat kind of dream. And he dreamed that he was a citizen in this strange country. And he was perplexed, just like in his real life, how to make 
the needle work? What was, what was wrong? What hadn't he thought of? And in this country, the king had given him 24 hours to figure it out. And if he didn't, the punishment was death. Well, he doesn't figure it out. The soldiers bring him before the king. And he looks over at the soldiers and they all these big, long, tall spears. And the head of the spear had a hole in it. And he stared at these spears and he thought, oh, I know, I know. And so he fell down on his knees in his dream and he was begging the king for more time. And then he woke up. And it was four in the morning. He's like, oh, so glad that was a dream. And he got out of bed and he knew exactly what to do. He jumped out of bed, ran to his workshop, and by nine in the morning, a needle with an eye at the point had been crudely modeled. After that, it was easy to make the sewing machine work. And his relative Thomas Draper finished the account and said, this is the true story of an important incident in the invention of the sewing machine. And that's maybe the difference between knowledge and insight. Insight is that moment of jumping from one concept to another, that light bulb moment when it goes, ding, ah, I know. For Elias Howe, it, it apparently happened in a dream. Paul's prayer for the church in Philippi is that the Holy Spirit of God would work in you and I and all of us collectively, and he would add insight to our love. In December of 2016, uh, there's an amazing little store on First Avenue called Nancy's Fashions. I bought a few things for Lori. My wife been there over the years. Got to know Nancy a little bit. And in 2016, I walked in. Uh, I can't remember what I was supposed to be buying, something for Lori. And Nancy says, oh, Darren, it's so good that you've come into the store. I really want to talk to you about Melvin. And Melvin was this great guy. He would go up and down First Avenue, and he had this old rickety shopping cart, and he would collect bottles. So as we got to know Melvin, we learned that he had had an accident, disability, got a small little disability check, and, uh, but he needed a little extra money to make life work. And so he would go up and down collecting bottles, take them down to the bottle depot, which is a fair good walk, and he's got this stupid cart and it's rattling all over the place. And so Nancy says, Darren, I think I have an idea that I want to give Melvin a hand up, not a hand out. And I think if we could help him with getting a new cart, that would just help his life so much. And she says, I don't know what that new cart's supposed to look like, but she goes, you got a church full of amazing people. Uh, do you think he can help me out? I said, we do have a church of amazing people. And so I took the idea to uh, Brent and Brenda Fair, and uh, I said, okay, here's the idea, here's the situation. And so Brent and I talked, and he goes, leave it with me, we'll, we'll think of some stuff. And uh, Brent did an incredible job, and he came up with a beautiful cart, and uh, he did a bunch of neat little things. He, number one, made it out of aluminum. He goes, we don't want this to be too heavy. We want this to be nice and light for Melvin going up in the street. Number two, we want to make inflatable wheels, so it's easier, way easier to roll than a shopping cart. And a third, it's probably annoying that the bag keeps closing, so I want to make something where you can pin the bag open. It's easy for him to toss uh, cans and bottles in there. Well, it was a beautiful moment. We actually had Nancy come here to church. We interviewed her on stage, and then uh, we kind of quietly gave it to Melvin, and uh, he's like, wow, thank you. 
and uh, he used it for about eight months. One time I was down at the Bottle Depot taking some bottles we had as a family back, and there he was just using it, going, and I was like, this is awesome. And uh, about eight months into it, some absolute total schmuck stole Melvin's cart. It was just, it was horrible. It was tragic. I guess in hindsight, we should have given him a chain and a lock to go with it. Who would think that someone would want to steal his car? That's terrible. Um, but you know, that is a beautiful thing. It remains a good memory for me because there's a couple jumps of insight. Number one, Nancy had the love for Melvin. And for a long time, she's like, I just don't know how to help this guy. And then one day, she's like, it's his cart. That was her moment of insight added to her love. For Brent, it was studying and trying to think of this thing, how to draw, how to plan it out, and ultimately how to weld it out of aluminum. That's a real life example of, I think, what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell us, that our love needs to have knowledge with it. It needs to have moments of insight. That was true 2,000 years ago, and it is true today. And that's actually a promise that Paul was praying for, that God will add knowledge and insight to our love. Maybe you are a grandma or grandpa here this morning. Your grandkids have walked away from Jesus. They're making some bad choices. They're hurting their own lives. You love them to death, but you are just not sure how to help them. I want to challenge you this morning. Claim Philippians 1.9. Ask God to add knowledge and insight to your love. Maybe, maybe you're going to work every single day, but you have a coworker who absolutely drives you crazy. And you're wrestling with this. You know Jesus got a kind of a high calling. Jesus is the one who said, love your neighbor as yourself. But how specifically on the job are you supposed to live that out when your coworker acts like a jerk all the time? Well, my challenge to you this morning is claim Philippians 1.9. Ask the Holy Spirit of God to add knowledge and insight to your love. Well, Paul has a lot more to pray, so we're jumping to verse, verse 10. First point was Paul's prayer. Second point's entitled, The Point of the Prayer. You know, every generation has a musical artist that just instantly relaxes you when you hear it. For older generations, it might have been Frank Sinatra. We're going to listen to a few seconds of his song, Somebody to Watch Over Me. There's a somebody I'm longing to see I hope that she turns out to be Someone who'll watch over me pretty hard to feel stressed when you're listening to that. He's just so relaxing. Like, you're like, wow, I need a cup of hot chocolate. I'm going to go to sleep. Just mellows you right out. If you were a teenager in the 70s, probably the Steve Miller band. They have a ton of songs that uh, just lower your stress level. But I think for the last 20 years in popular music, um, there's nobody that mellows me out more than Jack Johnson. This is an incredible dude. He lives in Hawaii. And whenever he's not off touring or singing, he is surfing. He is just the most non-stressed dude ever. And uh, he has a phenomenal song called Good People. And uh, we're going to listen to the chorus of that song. 
I've been changing channels, I don't see them on the TV shows. And where'd all the good people go? We got heaps and heaps of what we saw. So Jack Johnson was interviewed and he said, this whole song, Good People, where did that come from? And uh, he says, actually, it's a little bit about reality TV. He goes in, he lives on the island of Oahu in Hawaii, and he says a TV show called Boarding House was being done in Hawaii. They tried to make a reality show about people learning to surf and doing all this stuff. And the lady who was the producer uh, came and found me and asked if I wanted to play the music track on the grand finale of the show. And I heard all about it, heard about the show, and I just kind of politely said, you know what, no thanks, not really interested. And a few days later, this woman comes back and finds him. And he was doing a fundraiser for Sunset Elementary School, a little elementary school in Oahu, and I think his oldest kid was going into kindergarten or something, and so he had agreed to uh, play at this thing and do a fundraiser for the school. And he was talking with one of the parents, and, and this woman, this producer, found him again. And she kind of rudely barges in, interrupts, stops the conversation, and she's like, y- y- you're not understanding me. This can be amazing for your career. You're going to be on national TV. This will be incredible. And he's like, honestly, no. <laughs> Thanks for the offer, but no. And there's actually a, a so- line in the sign that says, you interrupt me from a friendly conversation to tell me how great it's all going to be. And he goes, that's where it comes from. And then he says this. He says, there he is. But it's about that feeling you get sometimes when you flip through the channels And there isn't one thing on TV that's just not sensationalized or just completely about some of the lower parts of humanity. And you just start wondering where all the good people are. Well, Jack Johnson is not a believer to the best of my research, but man, does that line up Philippians 1.10. Paul prays these words. He says, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What an incredible thing. So I did my uh, little translation work, and it says, so that you may be able to test what is real and genuine and of great benefit in order that you all being sincere with no hidden motives and blameless throughout until the day of Christ. And when it says you may be able to test what is real and genuine, the the actual original Greek came from someone who was testing out oxen to see if they could pull their plow or not. See, when you bought oxen in the first century, you didn't just kind of make a little deal and the guy sends you a form on email and, yeah, I got 10 oxen, okay, good deal, let's buy them. You didn't do that. You want to see that those oxen actually can pull a plow that they can pull it straight, that you can control them. And so a farmer would bring over the oxen, they would hook them up to a plow, and they would test them to see if they're legit, if you could actually use them and they were worth buying. So the answer to Jack Johnson's question, where did all the good people go, ultimately should be followers of Jesus. Now, unfortunately, in 2,000 years of church history, that isn't always the case. 
Sometimes Christians behave very badly. But it's almost always when we are aiming at the wrong goal. In the Middle Ages, the church was way off track. Their focus was on political power and control. They were trying to mandate, run everything. They were totally wedded with power. Always ends up really badly. If our goal, on the other hand, matches the Apostle Paul's desire in Philippians 1.10, then we know we are on the right track. None of us are perfect. All of us have flaws. But as we saw last week, God is never not working on us. He's always trying to shape and form and mold us into the people He wants us to be. Ultimately, good people. That's a high calling, He says in this prayer, to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, the great part is, He doesn't just say, all right, there's the big goal now, go at her, all on your own. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us, gives us the power to keep going down that road. And why do we want to be good people? Well, it's not so that we can act superior or have kind of a holier-than-thou attitude, but good people who make this a better world to live in. You know, folks who don't know Christ that live in our communities aren't going to be introduced to Jesus by us demanding our rights or folding our arms and scolding them. They're going to meet Jesus when you and I aim at the right goal. Philippians 1.10. So you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Well, Paul's not quite done his prayer. He's got one crucial line to add. So our third point's entitled, The Effect. Philippians 1.11 says, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's the end goal of Paul's prayer for that church in Philippi, of course, for all of us 2,000 years later. Paul envisions followers of Jesus as we continue to mature, as we continue to grow in faith. He says he wants us to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You know, it's a law of nature. Healthy trees produce fruit. Healthy plants bear fruit. And if you are a legitimate follower of Christ for years, there ultimately should be fruit starting to come in your life. Good things coming out as a result of your prayers, your love, and your service. And then Paul includes this amazing line. He says that comes through Jesus Christ. That's pretty significant because Paul does not say And Jesus' followers should produce a lot of fruit through their own efforts by themselves. Not what he said. He doesn't even say real Jesus' followers should produce a lot of fruit through having lots of money and connections. doesn't say that. He says it's through Jesus Christ. What a beautiful reality. That is what separates the Christian faith from every other faith or world religion or, or new religious movement out there. That everybody's got a standard, but it's the Christian faith alone that says Christ lives in you. He's going to give you the knowledge, the wisdom, the power to keep following Him. You know, there really isn't a biblical vision of the Christian faith that's only about input. You know, that a good Christian equals someone who listens to sermons, reads Christian books, studies their Bible, listens to Christian music, 
If you do that, equals sign, you are a good follower of Jesus. That's really not a biblical vision. A biblical vision of a mature Christian is always someone who's producing fruit. Jesus expected it. The Apostle Paul expects it. My last week of holidays, uh, my friend Bob Evans, Bob's an amazing guy, lives in uh, Sycamus, B.C. in the interior just by Salmon Arm. Bob's been a pastor in that great little town for 14 years and uh, near the end of the summer there, Camp Quantos called him down to be a speaker for a kids camp. So Bob Bob came down and he calls me up and he goes, man, this camp's insane. They get me to speak in the morning and then at nine at night. He goes, nine at night? I need coffee to speak to kids at nine at night. He goes, anyways, I got time in the afternoon. You up for a walk, Phillips? So yeah, it was great. We met at Tim Hortons, got our stuff, did a whole walk through the town. And uh, Bob is just an endless source of hilarious stories. He's just such a big kid at heart. And uh, Bob's a super talented artist. So when he's not being a pastor, his little hobby, he's actually produced a whole line of comic books. And they're amazing illustrations. And he has about 15 different Superman t-shirts. Totally obsessed with Superman. So Bob's in his community. He's the pastor there. And he notices something interesting about this little town of Sycamus that all of the people working seem to, both the mums and the dads in all these families, they would uh, have to work out of town. They're working at a logging thing over here, a sawmill thing, a mine over here, all these different jobs. But everyone's leaving early in the morning, coming home late at night. And as a result, they're kind of a little bit of a commuter town. People are living there, but there wasn't a whole lot of town spirit. There wasn't a lot of, a lot of neat things going on. And he said, you know what? I'm feeling like God is prompting me to pray about what could we as a church do to really bring some joy, some fun to individuals and families in our town. So they prayed about it for months, and finally God gave them the idea of, remember the town's called Sycamus? So Bob came up with this idea of Sycamouse, and they basically turned that little town into Disneyland. And uh, it was a massive hit, and it's become a huge town feature. He says it takes almost, what did they say, 95 volunteers to pull this off. And uh, I stole some pictures off their Facebook page. Look at these, amazing. Welcome to Sycamose. Uh, They love and serve their town in an incredible way, and in turn, the town has loved them back. That's just the ultimate. Spider-Man giving you a hug. That's cool. So everyone who comes gets a gift bag as they go through, and it contains a gospel of John, an invite to their church, a schedule of youth events coming out in the fall, all that kind of stuff. And Bob said, over the years of doing this Sycamouse event, they have given hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these gift bags away. Now, that is only the way one particular church felt called to produce fruit. And it can happen in so many different ways around the world for every Christian believer. For some of us, bearing fruit is you are called to be a faithful prayer warrior. For some of us, it's called to serve at the local food bank. For some, it might be, as this church has done over the past four years, to take on a refugee family, help someone in need from around the world come here and start life all over again. Maybe you're called to mentor a younger believer. Maybe you're meant to have a role in our Kids Connect Sunday School. 
Maybe you're meant to be part of the worship team. Maybe you're meant to lead one of our small groups, our Connect, Grow, Serve groups. A lot of different ways to produce fruit. And that means there's a lot of freedom, there's a lot of choice, but the one non-negotiable that Jesus says and that the Apostle Paul says in this prayer is that he expects us not just to show up on Sunday mornings, fill the seat, and that's it. He expects us to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We started the sermon talking about prayer in general, and I think you can see as we have kind of carefully worked through Paul's prayer here that I didn't lie, it's a pretty amazing prayer. It's short to the point, but incredibly rich and incredibly deep. So here's my challenge for myself and all of us this week. I want us to take these few little verses, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I want them to pray them for ourselves and to pick one other person in our church and pray it for them. And I want you to put the person's name in that prayer. I chose as an example Candace, our worship leader today. So this is the prayer with Candace's name in it. Paul says that your love, Candace, may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ and be filled, Candace, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. That's my challenge. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for someone else this week. You know, the Apostle Paul prayed that prayer almost 2,000 years ago for that church in Philippi. Millions of people have prayed this prayer down through history. And now it's our turn. Amen?